Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 21, The Road Ahead. When the belligerent armies marched off in 1914, few expected the war to continue past Christmas. The conflicts of 1870, 1904, and 1911-12 had been relatively brief affairs, and many believed that the Great War of 1914 would be another addition to this growing trend. This short war illusion, as it is commonly referred to today by historians, was given credence by British pacifist Norman Angle, who, in 1910, argued that the economics of the day simply could not sustain a prolonged conflict. Engel wrote that the rise of industrialization had resulted in the creation of a global market, in which national economies were so closely interwoven, military conquests would disrupt stability, starting a chain reaction which would drag economies into recession. This theory, as you can imagine, became the t-shirt for socialists on the eve of the war. After all, it does make perfect sense. A protracted contest of arms would surely hamper domestic labor. As more working men enlisted, production hands would decrease, and a reduction of output would likewise affect input, trade, and net growth. A fairly ironic example of this occurred in the East, where Germany had been the largest importer of Russian grain, but once hostilities got underway, the supply was cut off, forcing Germany to introduce bread rationing, the first of the original belligerents to do so. So when it became clear things would not end by December, what was stopping the powers from calling a mutual truce and going home? After all, this would have been a good time to do it. Casualty lists had already cracked the 1 million mark, with hundreds of thousands of civilians already displaced. Both armies were exhausted, ammo was short, weather was bad, and there was a general sense of, well, now what, which lingered throughout the winter. But with 1915 approaching, it offered an opportunity to start anew, a control-alt-delete for a fresh perspective, with the hope that the next great push was just around the corner. 1915 would prove to be a year like no other, and it is arguably the most influential year of the entire war. It was here, at least on the Western Front, when the war began to take on its most infamous form. Repeated attempts and failures to break the deadlock resulted in the stalemate deepening, as more men were called upon to fill the thinning ranks, and in the East, cracks in Russian leadership and logistical breakdowns would be the harbinger of the Tsar's downfall. It was also an important year because it was a time of great experimentation. New ideas, tactics, and weaponry were adopted at a heightened pace, as attempts to break the deadlock grew desperate. In short, the decisions in 1915 will cast a long shadow throughout the rest of our narrative, and we will begin to see how the Great War's first full year set the tone for its duration. A quick look at a timeline shows us we have quite a road ahead of us. Here is just a short rundown of some of the highlights we will need to cover along the way. The Battle of Neuve-Chapelle and the Shell Scandal in Britain, beginning in March, we'll talk about that today. The implementation of unrestricted submarine warfare, the first use of chlorine gas in April, the Allied debacle at Gallipoli, the Armenian Genocide, the collapse of the Polish salient, the sinking of the Lusitania, and the final crushing of Serbia. If this was not bad enough, we will also welcome two new players to the stage, with the entry of Italy in May and Bulgaria in September, both of whom will escalate the fighting by opening new theatres. So at least I can't complain about a lack of material. But this week, we're going to focus on the Western Front, because it's been a while since we've been there, and we do have some catching up to do. So, Following the race to the sea, the Western Front had settled into its familiar S-shaped form. The opposing system of trench networks had throughout the winter grown in complexity. They now stretched 765 kilometers from the Swiss frontier to the North Sea, and would remain largely unchanged over the next three years. Now I should point out that although the lines rarely moved, the trenches themselves underwent continuous changes. They were expanded, dug deeper, reinforced, and abandoned as circumstances and geography dictated, 
And although they were not yet the intricate systems we will see in 1916 and 1917, this would be a good time to stop and paint a broad picture of what they were at a ground level, and what life was like for the troops manning them. Unfortunately, I did not have time to put up a proper diagram, so we're just going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. The best way to visualize a standard trench network is to picture three horizontal lines running parallel to one another. At the top, you have the front trench, or fire trench. This was where the action was, or as troops would come to call it, the sharp end. This was the most dangerous place for a soldier, as it was the most forward position and thus most exposed to enemy fire. Due to the high-stress environment, men were often rotated in and out of the fire trench every 2-10 to 10 days depending on the circumstances. Not only did this help to keep morale high, but also to allow a greater number of men to have frontline experience. Behind the fire trench was the support trench, largely reserved as a command post for senior officers, who would coordinate the defenses on the fire trench. In times of battle, it would also serve as a temporary aid station. The third and final trench was the reserve trench, which broadly speaking held, well, reserves, in a wide variety of forms such as equipment, weapons, and manpower. Commanding officers in the support trench could pool from these reserves in order to shore up defenses whenever needed. This would prove to be an aggravating problem, as supplies making their way from the reserve trench to the front line were often delayed, or forced to take detours based on changing conditions. Now, let's add one more line to this picture, except this one runs vertically through all three. This was the communication trench, which connected the entire network together. The communication trenches were the busiest and most important, as information, men, supplies, and equipment were constantly on the move. If a mine or a wayward shell forced to collapse in these trenches, it could result in a logistical nightmare, as movement from the rear to the front could become gridlocked. To avoid this, communication trenches were continually being dug, and began to spread out like tentacles throughout the war. Each trench, regardless of its purpose, was dug in a V-shaped zigzag, and were not the straight lines so often depicted in movies and television. The reasoning behind this was to protect men from flying shrapnel, but also to prevent enemy troops from being able to shoot straight down without obstruction. But the weaving nature of the trenches added further confusion to an already chaotic situation. Guides and signposts were often positioned at intersections, but even on a good day it was easy for a newly arrived soldier to get turned around, and if you were to add in the stress of battle, only more so. It is important to keep in mind the trenches were actually impressive feats of engineering. Dug almost entirely by hand at a depth of 6 to 10 feet, Underground trenches would be much deeper, of course. Your standard network, from reserve trench to the front, could be anywhere from 50 to over 1,000 meters deep, and featured dozens of additional auxiliary trenches and underground dugouts. They were, quite literally, subterranean cities in every sense of the word. While designs depended on their location, for example, they were usually dug shallower and low-laying regions where water was more prone to leak in, life inside the trenches was a miserable experience, day in and day out, regardless of the side you were on. An average day was filled with mundane tasks, which began at approximately 5am when things were quiet. Due to the inescapable mud and dirt, weapons and equipment needed continual cleaning and maintenance, because nothing worried men more than being caught unprepared for an enemy raid. Following that, there were defenses which needed repairing, supplies to allocate, and sentry duties to fulfill. It was a daily grind which drew the deepest grumbles from the men inside. Many had joined the army hoping for adventure, to escape the repetitiveness of their civilian lives, but found themselves stuck in the similar routines, except this time, hundreds of kilometers from home and surrounded by French and Belgian mud. But whatever complaints were made, the constant threat of death was like an unwelcome shadow which hung over everything. In fact, most men who did complain about the daily tasks only did so to keep their minds off the more horrific aspects of trench life. On both sides of no man's land, the soon-to-be battle-scarred landscape separating the two networks, danger came in countless forms. 
Those careless enough to stick their heads above the parapet were lucky to catch a sniper's bullet, fired by a ghostly figure from some unseen location. As a precaution, men would adopt a stoop posture when navigating the trenches, and how many ended up with back problems because of this, I have no idea. Health and hygiene were also areas of concern. Infections, the most feared being trench foot, a condition where prolonged exposure to a damp environment results in circulation loss and gangrene, was one of the more common. In fact, daily medical checkups were mandatory to catch early symptoms of trench foot, and clean, dry socks became one of the most beloved items for frontline troops. Other lovely conditions which reared their heads were typhus and dysentery, which hit hard during the colder months. Most men would also catch lice at some point too, and officers on both sides encouraged men to shave their heads, a tradition which continues in many militaries today. Officers were known to be particularly draconian about the health of their men, as the presence of things like trench foot or venereal disease were an indicator of bad morale, and in a growing war of attrition, a drop in morale could lead to full-out mutiny, as the French and Russians would learn in 1917. Then, of course, there were the rats, which could grow to the size of a small dog and carried who knows how many other nasty bugs. Of all the misery in the trenches, rats would be the most despised. Not only would they grow fat by gorging themselves on corpses of both man and animal, but when the trenches came under fire, would scurry to some unseen place only to emerge unscathed and continue their mechanical torment. It is of no surprise, then, that soldiers would often take joy in knocking a few of them off, or in some cases, adopt trench mascots, like cats and dogs and even goats, to not only help the rodent problem, but provide a source of comfort in the dreary days. But the most harrowing experience of trench life was being on the receiving end of an artillery barrage. From 1915 until late 1917, artillery was far and away the big killer. Medical records indicate that 60% of all combat casualties on the Western Front were the result of it. This number would dip in the final year of fighting, as the Royal Navy blockade made it impossible for the Germans to replenish their heavy weapons, forcing them to rely more on machine guns and mortars. Now I won't get into the gory details of what an artillery blast could do to a human body, because this podcast is marked as clean, but being hunched over in a narrow dugout, unable to move while an incessant avalanche of stomach-turning blasts fell around you, must be in the top three of the most horrific experience someone could endure. The concussive blasts, that is, the shockwave from an exploding shell, could collapse a man's lungs at a distance of 9 meters, and many men suffered psychological breakdowns from the deafening cannonades, a condition eventually identified as shell shock. Typically, and this will continue throughout the war, artillery shells came in two forms. One, a high-explosive shell designed to explode on impact, which were used to destroy fortifications and uproot barbed wire entanglements. These shells came in a variety of heavy and light calibers, and could weigh anywhere between 50 to 2,000 pounds. The second, and more deadly of the two, were shrapnel shells, designed to explode in flight over the heads of defending troops. Packed inside these shells were hundreds of small metal balls, which upon detonation would explode outwards in all directions, capable of wounding anyone within a 300 meter radius. Wounds sustained by shrapnel bursts were often fatal, as entry and exit wounds were never clean, and as Canadian historian Tim Cook points out, a wounded man was three times more likely to die from a shell wound than a bullet wound. I think Australian infantryman Frederick Manning, who would become a popular poet after the war, sums up the nature of artillery perfectly, and I will have to censor this. Quote, There's too much blanking artillery in this bloody war, unquote. And in 1915, the role of this frightening weapon was just getting underway. Yet, to the high command, artillery was the key to breaking the deadlock. Joseph Joffre and BEF commander Sir John French were of the same mind, and agreed that the fight had to be taken to the Germans. After all, the Germans were already firmly entrenched in Belgium and France, and they were not going to give up voluntarily. 
so if the Allies wanted them gone, they were the ones who needed to press the attack. But in early 1915, it was Joffre who was willing to make the greater sacrifice. True to his success lies in the offensive doctrine, Joffre had launched an assault in the Champagne region, that is, in the northeast sector of France to the west of the Argonne Forest. The Champagne offensive had actually gotten underway in December of the previous year, but like so many other attempts in the west was a total failure. What will become a chilling pattern on the western front, the fighting in Champagne had claimed 90,000 casualties in both French and German armies, and Joffre had only succeeded in moving the line less than 3 kilometers. The most significant action in the early part of the new year came just as the Champagne offensive was sputtering down in March. Beginning on March the 10th, 40,000 British and Indian troops launched an attack in Artois, near the ruined town of Neuve-Chapelle. This attack was part of Sir John French's attempt to appease Joffre, who had become agitated with his British counterpart due to his inability to help in the Champagne offensive. Tasked with leading this assault was a man who had become the most controversial and most hotly debated figure of the entire war, and that man was Lieutenant General Douglas Haig. Haig, whom we first met back in episode 16, was born into a middle-class family on June the 19th, 1861. A lifelong polo enthusiast, he saw overseas service in India, Sudan, and South Africa, and had entered the military in 1884, becoming a cavalry officer at the ripe young age of 23. In 1906, he helped advise the creation of the British Expeditionary Force under then-Secretary of War Richard Holden, and in 1909 had taken up the post of Chief of Staff for the British Indian Army. When the war broke out, Hag was back in England, and had taken command of the BEF's 1st Division, with Sir John French as overall commander. Hag had proven himself capable at Mons and Ypres, and increasingly became more influential, much to the chagrin of Sir French. The two men had a frosty but not overly hostile relationship, while French believed the war could be brought to an end by the summer, Haig envisioned a longer war of attrition playing out, and it was this attitude which eventually led to him replacing French in December of 1915. As you are no doubt aware, it was under Haig's leadership when the British, and as an extension the Commonwealth forces, would undertake the bloodiest and most costly operations of the war, the Somme, Passchendaele, Arras, and the final 100 days offensives just to name a few. Due to the appalling casualties sustained in these offensives, Haig would earn the nickname The Butcher, and become synonymous with the futile nature of attritional warfare. But we will leave a discussion of Haig's tactics to a later date, because for now we've got other things to worry about. What would become a staple of Western Front strategy, the assault on Neuve-Chapelle began with the largest preliminary bombardment of the war to date. For some 35 minutes, British guns pounded the German defenses dug in on the high ground just east of the town itself. Nearly 500 guns would fire 200,000 light-caliber shells into the German positions. In total, this 35-minute bombardment had expelled more shells than the British had fired in the entirety of the South African War. Complementing the artillery, the Royal Flying Corps had been employed to take aerial photography of the battlefield, to give the attacking forces a better understanding of the terrain and depth of the German defenses. Hours after the bombardment had lifted, Neuve-Chapelle was quickly captured by Haig's forces. But before they could traverse and seize the high ground, German reinforcements had already retaken the ridge. Haig then ordered a detachment of 1,000 men to skirt around and storm the ridge from the north, but soon found he had ordered a suicide mission. Their view unobstructed from atop the ridge, German gunners had no trouble tracking the flanking troops, and promptly cut them down. Of the 1,000 sent in, none survived. On March the 13th, just three days after its jump-off, British and Indian forces dug in along the line, and were soon reinforced by fresh Canadian troops, who had been arriving in France since February. Of the 40,000 troops under Haig, 7,000 British and 4,200 Indian had become casualties, but Neuve-Chapelle turned out to be a small Allied victory. 
It had shown that an aggressive frontal assault following a prolonged artillery bombardment could be used to break the line. And the Battle of New Chapelle goes a long way in explaining why this tactic became so popular for Western Front generals. But the military legacy of the battle has been overshadowed by the political consequences which followed. After his assessment, Sir John French stated to a Times War correspondent that the reason why Hay could not capitalize on his success was because of a lack of high explosive shells, which were needed to destroy barbed wire entanglements and fortifications. The Times correspondent, Charles Reppington, quoted French saying that less than 8% of the shells fired on March the 10th were of the high-explosive type, and the remaining 92% were shrapnel shells, which are useless if you want to break through anything remotely fortified. Reppington took this report to his boss, Lord Northcliffe, a media tycoon who owned three of the largest newspapers in Britain, The Times, The Daily Mail, and Evening News, along with numerous other journals and publications. In a time predating the internet and television, a monopoly on newspapers had made Northcliffe one of the most powerful men in the country, and one who had recently become disheartened with the way Secretary of War Lord Kitchener had been running things. A report of this magnitude would be devastating to Asquith's liberal government, and with the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lord George, calling for a greater commitment to a war economy, Northcliffe sensed an opportunity. Kitchener had always opposed a war economy, arguing that the Germans would exhaust themselves before a major British effort was necessary. But with a little bit of media-savvy spin, Northcliffe can make it look like Kitchener's opposition was costing the BEF success on the battlefield, and better yet, costing British lives. Northcliffe would sit on this report for now, but this was the official start of the Shell scandal, and would prove to be a Chekhov's gun waiting to make its grand entry. It would all boil over in May, amidst the carnage at Gallipoli, and would have profound consequences in Britain. Prime Minister Asquith would be forced to adopt a coalition government, and Winston Churchill, then Lord of the Admiralty would be forced out of office, to fade into temporary political obscurity. But we will save the juicier details for another time. So in a nutshell, this was the situation in the West in the early going of 1915. Next week, we will spend time talking about the German strategy, and Falkenhayn's decision to focus on a knockout blow against the Russians. It was the fear of losing their eastern ally which prompted Churchill to begin calling for an invasion of the Dardanelles. If successful, it would allow the Western Entente to reinforce Russia through the Black Sea, but would end up one of the worst military disasters of the 20th century. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in touch with me. Comments, criticisms, and suggestions are always more than welcome. If you're interested in helping out The Great War Podcast, give us a search on iTunes and leave a five-star review, as it'll help keep us afloat in the rankings and attract any new listeners out there. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.